2: Hello there, listener. Progressive Britain podcast host Stefan Rolnick here, coming to you from Labour Party Conference in Brighton. We've got a bumper episode for you this week. It's our 100th episode, so I sat down with Alison and Patrick Maguire from The New Statesman in a cafe round the corner from Conference Hall to talk about how politics has changed since we started the podcast two years ago. And earlier on in the day, I ran into old progress digital whiz Joe Cox, who was in the same bar Brighton, early to watch the Welsh rugby game. We sat down in a very empty beer garden to catch up about what he's been doing since he left Progress at Hope Not Hate. In both venues, there is a fair bit of background noise. Finding space to record at party conference is not simple or easy, but hopefully you'll feel like you're right there with us. As usual, if you get any value from this podcast and we'd really appreciate you leaving a rating and a review, it bumps us up the algorithm so more progressives like you can hear it. So without further ado, Here is the 100th episode of the Progressive Britain podcast. Hello and welcome to the 100th episode of the Progressive Britain podcast, the podcast that of course believes that progressive politics can change the world. We've just got a 100th birthday letter from the Queen and we're sitting here in the cafe underneath the big I360 tower in Brighton, which is basically like the London Eye, but on a massive pole. And we're looking out onto the stormy Brighton Sea and off the back of quite a turbulent few days at Party Conference, so we're going to ride out the peaks and troughs of Party Conference, but also the last couple of years in politics since the podcast was set up. Joined here by Patrick McGuire from The New Statesman. Patrick, how are you doing? I'm very well. Slightly,
0: slightly hungover. Um, <laughs> sorry. It's a pretty it's evergreen... A, hey, it's a family podcast, but I'm sure... <laughs> I
3: mean, it's not really, to uh, be honest.
0: My mum, my, my, my uh, I'm not sure she knows what podcast is, so I... <laughs> Don't feel ashamed, Sam. Slightly hungover after a great progress reception last yeah, night. Yeah, it was good to see you. And Alison, how are you doing?
3: I'm absolutely fine. I went to bed quite early. Yeah, same. Because you know, some of us have got a job to do, eh?
2: <laughs> straight to McDonald's, twenty nuggets for me and straight to bed. Can we um, clear something up for our listeners, almost all of whom I imagine are following you on Twitter, Alison? Apart from, for the three who aren't, it's at Alison underscore McGovern.
3: Correct, correct.
2: Um, a photo surfaced of you yesterday at a conference fringe event in the football kit.
3: Oh, goodness me, yes.
2: Tell us about that. So
3: (laughs) so what happened was that I was playing in the Women Member of Parliament and Lobby Journalists' first ever football match every year since since like Neil Kinnock was a small child. Every year there's been a men MPs football game versus the lobby, the political journalists who work in Westminster. And for many years on a Saturday, they would have that football game. And it will be Women's Conference at the same time at the Labour Party. And I will allow you to gamble which of those two events used to make it into the newspapers. And it wasn't (laughs) Labour Party Women's Conference, put it that way. So um, partly because we have a women's football team now in Parliament, which is very good, Um, us and the women journalists decided not to play each other, but rather to be... Because we're in a joint team, so it would be weird then to play each other. So we decided that we would play Lewis FC, local football team, and we were doing that and the game over round basically it kicked off a bit late. So I didn't quite make it to my Fringe event in time to get changed <laughs> out my kit. And I was like, well, screw this. I'll just do it in my kit. You still uh, have boots on? I did still have boots on, yeah. Shin <laughs> pads. The yeah, last. We, were, we were playing on a like 3G pitch. So it wasn't like full studs. Uh, so it's it just molded, you know. <laughs> but, okay. So it was fine. It was and the fine. game went well? To or... be fair, to a labor activist at the Fringe, I don't think they noticed.
2: <laughs> and Patrick, how has conference been for you? Because... In my mind, the kind of the cliche of the journalist at party conference is 2am with an old fashioned at the back of a back of a swanky bar on your laptop. Is it like that? Or is it more like the kind of the way we do it at Progress, which is a pack of mini rolls at midnight watching the news? God, I've
0: not. I've not had mini rolls for years. <laughs> so I'll go straight to Tesco afterwards and buy a packet. Underrated snack. Well, it's, this is my third conference season as a, as a working journalist and at a lesser conference that immediately preceded this one. Um, I did something I've never done before, which is I went to the hotel bar at 11 o'clock after dinner, looked around and thought, you know what, there's nothing for me here. Whereas usually I would go and have, Mm. you know, several drinks, stumble back to my room, you know, having had several conversations that I can't quite remember and business Mm. cards of people who I don't recognize and will never speak to again. (laughs) So, but I mean, that is a useful and necessary part of conferences Mm. is, is that sort of late night schmoozing. So I would say, you know, an old fashioned is far too classy for me, yeah. but I think you're not too far from the but truth. But it is actually a useful part of your work for you as yeah, meetings yeah. yeah. people. Ultimately, you, you know, there are lots of people who you intend to hook up with. Um, I mean, in a purely platonic <laughs> um, sense of the word. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. I'm not sure
3: this is like the most <laughs> inclusive description that we've ever given a, yeah. of conference on the uh, um, Progress Podcast. Th- that
0: you mean to catch up with uh, yes, over the course of the year. Um, and you don't, so it's a good time to sort of, you know collar them, and also meet people who you've never spoken to before and otherwise mm-hmm. wouldn't have the same. You know, it's a great level of conference. Yeah. Everybody's in the conference par at 2am. Well, not everybody. Wise people aren't. <laughs> um, yeah. And well, and last night at conference,
2: a little bit before then, we had the Progress Rally. Addison, we did. You opened with a speech that was actually about looking back and learning from our history. Um, is there, looking back at Labour Party history and British political history, What era is feeling particularly relevant for you right now?
3: Do you know, that's a really interesting question. Um, And I guess I always previously would have said the 1970s because the whole European issue and the way that dominated. And it's like, okay, well, where did the Labour Party get to in the end, folks? And that was probably the right decision. But I think that this a little bit at the moment feels to me a bit more like the late 80s in that I am old enough to remember when Margaret Thatcher resigned and that feeling that um, actually the Tories were crumbling. But the lesson for me is that when I was like in finishing primary school, it felt like everything was about to change, but it didn't until I was like nearly an adult and that we have to take the right choices. Otherwise, we will be out of office. You know, we've done nine years. You know, do we want to do another nine? like because i don't so we have to take the right choices
2: i think it's quite a difficult thing to do to pinpoint that exact decade i'm reminded of uh, the interview we did with tim dixon who was a co-founder of more in common the charity that works at reducing polarization and working on research around social fracturing and we had a really interesting conversation and the way he described it was he feels like we're kind of at the beginning of a moment if we zoom out of labor party history and look at british political history he said he got the feeling we're in like a 1910 1920s moment obviously that is fraught with
0: difficulty but Patrick, where do you feel like we sit right now? I mean, I'd hesitate to put a date on it, but I definitely would agree with Mr. Dixon's basic analysis, which is, uh, yeah, it does feel like the old drivers of voting behaviour are definitely changing. You know, much smarter people than me have written on length on this. But, you know, that question of culture and education driving voting behaviour as much as economics, I don't, think it, I don't think there's any grounds to dispute that. And I think the most interesting bit of the speech John McDonald just gave... You know, he was talking about all these sweeping structural reforms, but really, like the most important bit w- was the paragraph. You know, the the twenty or so words where he nodded almost, you know, shamefacedly to the fact he, you know, Labour needs to become a Remain party. Obviously, you wouldn't be so insubordinate as to put it in those, uh, <laughs> in those slightly cheeky terms. Yeah. But you know, ultimately, regardless of the economic program the real question is where do you stand on these fundamental questions of identity? And well, let's talk about Brexit because Alison, this podcast was set up about a year on from the European
2: union referendum. What do you feel like we've learned about our country since then?
3: Well, I think we've learned that people in the Labour party are really quite pro European. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, we've sort of tested the theory to destruction that actually that there's a labor form of brexit that we would like and be enthusiastic about you know i like I was perfectly happy to think that there might be a compromise that we might put up with, but I think that we've learned that the um the internationalism in our movement is pretty strong and robust um what I think we've learned about Britain is i don't I don't know. I think that's still, hmm. think that's still an open a, question. Yeah. I think the one thing that I'm really cross about that still goes on, and I think we're only just beginning to get to the end of, is this like, it was Northern League voters that did this, you know, that actually this revealed something about like Northerners, that they were really unhappy with like globalization and all these like foreigners and everything. It's like Northerners who are grumpy about all of that and they're... Like, no, the Brexit vote would not have happened without the people of Hampshire. Can we yeah, all just you remember? remember yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. Never and so I news think we've cruise. got a way to go on that.
0: You never see news crews go on safari to Seven Oaks, <laughs> which is like, you know, voted lead by uh, a And that place is wild,
3: by the way. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um,
2: yeah. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that always makes me cringe a little bit in this debate, which I think is a something that's been said more and more over the last few years, which is I don't feel like I recognize my country anymore. And I think that's fought with difficulty because the kind of the levels of polarization and kind of racism and xenophobia, actually, a lot of people do recognize. And I think it's painful to admit this, but it's kind of a fundamental part of our country's recent history. And I wonder, Patrick, to what extent do you feel like this Brexit debate goes back to a bigger kind of identity crisis in, in British culture and British history that, you know, that for years working class people in this country were convinced that patriotism meant signing up to the elites going around the world and plundering various different countries? And is it too optimistic to think that maybe this identity crisis provides progressive people with a chance to kind of reshape that history and have a kind of more progressive patriotism?
0: Uh, I'd say it's certainly worth a try. (laughs) Um, But yeah, clearly the roots of this run run very deep, right? It's as much a a question about the structure of the economy Mm -hmm. as it is a question of identity, right? It has as much to do with PC gone mad. Yeah. Uh, I would say actually maybe more to do with PC gone mad in inverted commas, uh, than it does, you know, uh, de-industrialization in, in the North, right? It's, you know, uh, the best, the best line I've ever read about this is it's not poor voters who won Brexit. It's voters who felt insufficiently rich, you know, people for whom they think life, they should win life five nil, but mm-hmm. actually are only winning three, one, yeah. uh, And so that desire to kick against something was was born out of that, and that's where you know the old Brexit voters in Seven Oaks come from, really. And and a fundamental
2: part of that has been a kind of cultural polarisation. Patrick, what's it been like for you to
0: cover that as a journalist? Um, At times, dispiriting, especially. I mean, especially in the, especially in Westminster, it can be very very depressing Mm. to just the sheer levels of disingenuousness on both front benches, actually, uh, on these important and fundamental yeah. questions. But yeah, but it's also been like, you know, there's the, there's the terrible dreary old cliche, Never no bit a better time to be a journalist. I mean, it's incredibly mm-hmm. exciting to cover this moment of mm-hmm. realignment, but it's also, you've got to remember, this is a country we all have to live in. And, yeah. you know, sometimes I, I wish I was, you know, a foreign correspondent being paid in dollars, yeah. my <laughs> salary appreciating every month. But, you know. Yeah, and I mean, one of those, one of the bits of that drama has been the, proroguing of
2: parliament and there's a lot of people who've talked about in the language of a coup and you can debate the merits of whether it's useful to talk about in that sense but i think it almost distracts from kind of a bigger problem in british democracy right now which is it seems like incredibly fertile ground for democratic backsliding you've got huge polarization you've got a kind of stagnant economy which with a recession on its way you've kind of got these cultural dividing lines And Alison, I don't want to ask you, should we be worried? Because I'm sick of asking that question because it just makes everybody feel very despondent. And the
3: answer is yes, because things can always get worse. I mean, that's what we found out, right? Things can always get worse. Mm.
2: Focusing on not necessarily even the positives, but in a very realistic sense, what it looks like to fight back against this. Kind of how do we shift the idea of democracy as something you do in your county hall, you know, once every couple of years to an active thing that we're constantly participating in?
3: So I think that... Patrick's right in that I think the institutions that we have in politics at the moment are not being cared for very well by the people in them and whether that is the Labour Party spending a lot of time sniping at each other rather than thinking about the behaviours that we all exhibit and whether or not that furthers the institution that we all proclaim to care about or whether it is the House of Commons where like to be to be honest it the behaviours of the people inside the House of Commons. And, I mean, it pains me to hear Patrick talk about people being disingenuous. For me, in politics, it, you, you have to say what you think to be right, mm. and you have to act that way. Otherwise, you put at risk the health of the institution. And when, you know, the, the issue that's in the Supreme Court at the moment, right, In what in one sense... That's that's a process thing. Mm. It's about how the Prime Minister did what he did in prorogation, not you know, Brexit or the substance of the economic matter before us. However, it does matter because if we if we are negligent in the state and the health of the House of Commons as an institution, then either we've got a better one yeah. or we have to recognize the damage that we ourselves are doing. Mm. So I think that it is in some ways it is a it, the time is ripe for us to set out some new ground rules and I think with the election of a new speaker that's what we will be doing and I think also that um when it com- you know the, the house of commons right is something that we can all criticize and it is easy copy for anybody to be like oh the house of commons is the problem party politics is the problem however I tell you this it, I was elected in the kind of under the shadow of the expenses scandal and you you felt the responsibility to try and make it better because of that. And in many ways it's felt to me like the past few weeks have been like the anti expenses in that I've had constituents coming up to me saying I want you to go to the House of Commons and I want you to go and do that job and represent us. They it's not like they like MPs anymore or they respect them anymore but they want us to do our jobs and we have to show ourselves to be worthy of that
0: yeah and sort of as a as a broadly sympathetic observer, um, this is a challenge as much as it is an opportunity for progressives right, to seize the moment and instigate the institutional change that is mm. necessary. But the thing that strikes me is nobody votes for to make, you know to pick up on John Mcdonnell 's speech again, you know ultimately with the best will in the world, nobody votes for structural change. You vote for people because they have a set of answers to a to yeah. a moment, right? Um, you know, nobody voted for David. Well, there might have been some people, um, I'm not sure everyone want to meet them, who voted for David Cameron in 2010 because he was proposing elected police and crime commissioners. That's part of a, that's part of a wider story, right? Uh, you know, nobody voted for Blair because they wanted a Supreme Court. Mm. Um, I suppose devolution might be the exception to that rule. But anyway, um, you know, it's about mm. having a broader story to tell. Yeah. And, and you know, institutional change, it can be the undertow of that.
2: And I think looking at that broader story, it's quite interesting you're talking about where the cause of this, and where we're chasing it back, and you mentioned PC gone mad, and I think actually the expenses scandal in many ways feels like it's, when we look back on history, it will be an important stepping stone.
3: Well, I don't know. I'm not sure that that's right, actually. I think the the PC gone mad thing is much more deep-rooted than that. So um, the thing that unites Brexit voters much more than where they live, what they do, their levels of education is that they agree with the following statement, that feminism has gone too far. Yeah. They also are united by the idea that multiculturalism has gone too far. Mm-hmm. So we are talking about a very deep-seated view about who should have power in our country and whether it is right or wrong that we take on historic injustices. Now, I'm sorry, I'm not going to change my mind on feminism in order to appeal to Brexit voters. So... We have to recognise the political situation that we're in and work out how to, how to win against that background. And those big, kind of, those big changes in our society, they, they, they do have people will, who will disagree with them for mm. some time. And that is just a challenge that the Labour Party has to fight now and, and has always had to fight.
2: So what does it look like to recognise the political situation and take action accordingly without compromising our values?
3: Well, look... <laughs> That's just ask any Labour member of Parliament who has ever stood in a marginal seat and has been greeted on the doorstep by somebody who doesn't like immigration, not because of the impact on their you know high street or their job, but because they don't like foreigners. I mean, what does a Labour person say to that? And I think you have to answer honestly and say, "I've listened to you, and I don't agree." And and, and as it happens, everyone. By the way, I would say my experience is that. With the voters, honesty is the best policy sometimes. And sometimes people will vote for you, not because they agree with you, but because they think that you're a decent person who's prepared to say what they think.
2: And so talking about another one of those, one of the policy areas where these cultural divides kind of comes through it. um, Since we started this podcast, actually climate change activism has entered a kind of new phase of of enthusiasm. And um, I saw somebody remark the other day that actually the climate change debate has seen children behaving like leaders and leaders behaving like children. We've all seen the awful things that various men in the media have said about people like Greta Thunberg and in response to her kind of activism. Does it look like climate change is going to be another one of those areas that fractures this kind of
0: cultural and social divide further, do you think? Well, we saw that yesterday or the day before. Oh, no, and indeed yesterday, purely because um, in, in the internal row here at conference over the Green New Deal, right? You there are clear cultural divides to use Labour as a microcosm for broader society between largely young activists who care deeply about this and want to be really ambitious, and, you know, what, I don't mean this pejoratively, but Mm. other vested interests, like the leadership and the unions Mm. who have competing interests to balance, right? That split exists actually on the left in itself. Yeah, exactly.
2: And so, Alison, assuming that the future of socialism will essentially be defined by climate change... What does that socialism look like to you in a broader sense? Because I guess we have to kind of start with climate change and build out in the way it's going to affect all the different areas of the economy. Do you feel confident that that kind of work is being done now? Um, Plan for that?
3: uh, To a certain extent. I'm always surprised that when we talk about climate change, we constantly talk about Britain as if what Britain does will have a defining impact on climate change when it won't. I mean, I think we... Might more helpfully talk about our foreign policy and what yeah. we're doing with global institutions and, about, and get, how how it's going in bringing China into those global institutions. Yeah.
2: And I and I guess that's that's a sense in which climate change is going to define every single aspect.
3: It is, it is, but but I think I, I genuinely think that we are we are missing the point if we think that our response to climate change can stop at banning plastic bags and everybody having a reusable cup. Yeah, like. That's nonsense. You know, we will not solve it that way as China opens coal-fired power stations. So I I think, personally speaking, I think I see climate change much more as a foreign policy challenge. Of course, it's an economic challenge as well. And Lord knows that I think that investment in, in the right sort of energy technology will serve this country well, not least because of continuity of supply much more than its impact on climate change. But it is a foreign policy challenge, in my view.
2: So let's talk about what's happening right now at Party Conference. So Patrick, you have been you know, hurrying around, covering, covering every aspect of it. Um, obviously, we're, only, we're recording this on Monday. This will be coming out on Tuesday. So we don't have all the takes and takeaways. But obviously, quite a lot has happened already. So just run our listeners through who might not have been keeping up with it. What are the big headlines so far? And how are things shaping up for the last
0: few days of conference? <sighs> well, the big question is... Sorry, the big theme. The biggest theme is the question of tension between the various component parts of what you might broadly call the Corbynite movement, right? Um, and and the weird sort of innate conservatism of the leadership on issues that are really animating activists of all hues, right? On Europe, uh, you know, it's more fudge. Uh, you know, on the question of the deputy leadership, it was, you know, once more into the breach, oh wait, not really. Um, so really, it's the, it's the question of, to, to come up, with what I said before about you know speaking to and seizing a moment, uh, this is an opportunity for Labour's progressives, right? Because if anyone's seizing the moment, it's certainly not Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour leadership, uh, because you know this the story of this conference ultimately on any issue, uh, whichever way you slice it, is basically a story of their timidity on big issues. Be that an issue that might not be. Uh, Obviously, isn't on the same page. Regressive, say on the internal, you know, internal uh, civil war or whatever, or on issues on which there can be broad-based policy consensus, like climate and Europe. And do you think this disunity is going to cut through in any way? Uh, You'd think so. Yeah. I mean, even if, say, you're watching the ten o'clock news, or you're driving to work, and you know the the labor the labor story you will hear on the music radio, or we'll see at the top of the ten o'clock news, will be. Uh, fighting like ferrets in a sack. It won't be bold policy offer. Uh, it will be more, you know, internal row of a Brexit policy that you just want to never hear about again. Um, so, yes, yeah, so it'll sure. certainly cut through.
2: And what, what's, your been, what's your take being Alison from conference so far?
3: Well, I mean, I, I thought I was going to go to the Progress Rally on Sunday absolutely furious with um, forces, you know, in and around the NEC for disrupting our ability to get our message across but but by that point it all sort of become slightly humorous with like people in momentum like condemning John Lansman and then, so i was like you know it's like us progress and momentum we're all kind of like on the same side it was like slightly bizarre turn of events so i think it it has been you know it's not good if our our ability to communicate a message is overshadowed that that is that is not a success um in the end I think that if you you know look at the social care stuff or um four day week which I don't think I've been to a fringe event yet where people haven't talked about four day week and John McDonald's done it again um in his speech and I think that's really really fascinating what's that telling us about the psyche of the British public and I think if I was to ask my constituents if I could give them more money or more time I mean I think they're quite like both right (laughs) obviously they would (laughs) But I think loads of people haven't got enough time in their life. And the idea that the Labour Party is here to give you back more time, I think, is a theme that we're going to run with. And it's if that message is overshadowed, then that is a massive error, because that is a really, really important message for us to carry.
2: So all these messages are super important because there's a potential general election on the horizon, but there's all kinds of uh, parliamentary business and shenanigans that are going to happen before then. So, Patrick, for our listeners now, what should they be looking out for as you know, post-conference
0: season as Parliament returns? Uh, that's a really good question. Well, obviously, um, to throw that question back at you slightly, uh, <laughs> by the time this podcast comes out tomorrow, we'll know the outcome of the Supreme Court judgment on whether that uh, advice to prorogue Parliament was lawful. So that, uh, the outcome of that or not, will set, uh, very much set the tone um let's wait for the European Council on the eighteenth and nineteenth, see if he gets a deal. Uh spoiler alert, I don't think so. Uh or if he does, you know, it'll the numbers are still very tricky. Um so yeah, it's gonna this week is gonna be incredibly busy. Uh and you know, if anyone sort of vaguely politics adjacent is listening, uh, you know, obviously cancel Law leave, etc for October.
2: Alison, what about you? What work's being done now? Ready to lay the ground for a smooth uh, landing post conference back into parliament
3: well i mean i could uh, I could tell you all the details of how we prepare for general elections in royal south, yeah. but then i I think Stefan that I'd be giving all the secrets away we so want to do that. we you know you don't want to ha- know how the yeah. magic happens, but um, um I think that everybody is getting themselves ready and in that place um you know but uh, it, we have been needing to be on a general I think, general election footing for months and months and months, mm. so it's not new.
2: And um, just to finish off, Alison, throw this question at you, surprise. But um if our listeners are listening now and they want to go back and listen to one episode of the Progressive Britain podcast, oh my you goodness particularly I mean it's hard to pick one and I'm sorry to put you on the spot.
3: Well there's the one where I tell Alistair Campbell off. That's quite funny. <laughs> that, for I mean I was his just in the Twitter. Room, I was
2: just in the room watching that recording and I thought that was
3: pretty um, funny. that that I enjoyed doing that yeah. if if I'm honest. <laughs> um I think that actually the one that I really so listening to um listening to one of our friends from Northern Ireland talking about um uh campaigns um there on same sex marriage and um and uh, women's reproductive rights. I think those are some of the sort of more powerful. It's actually, it's actually not the ones with politicians. Yeah. I think it's, the, it, <laughs> it's, it's the ones where we get to listen to other people talk about their campaigns.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I won't ask you, Patrick, what your favorite episode is, because or, I know all you of can't them. choose. All of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but Patrick, thanks so much for joining us. It's been really good to well, have magic. you, Alison. I, I mean, I'm you. sure you both have to rush off now, but, uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Thank Stefan. Thank you. Cool. So, I've just bumped into an uh, old friend of progress, ex colleague, and more importantly, Welshman, Joe Cox. Hello. Joe, tell the listeners what you're up to now. So, I am currently working at a fun little organization called Hope Not Hate, who are Britain's
1: leading anti fascist, anti racist campaign. So, Hope Not Hate uh, was formed about 15 years ago. And in that 15 years, we've had a, a, a shining career in sort of fighting the far right and, you know, pushing back up against some of the more extreme fringes in society. We beat the BNP in Barking and Dagenham in, in, in the noughties. And, you know, we stopped a Labour MP from being
2: murdered by Nazi terrorists and a whole lot more. All in a day's work. And so yeah. what are your uh, what are your main priorities right now?
1: Right now, one of our main priorities is beating the Brexit party. So we're all about, you know, taking on Nigel Farage. We did a fringe here at Labour Party Conference yesterday about beating the Brexit party. And we've got a brand new pamphlet, which has just been brought out, which you can find on our website as well. Put that in the show notes. Yeah, if you could, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, and, and look, this it's, it's what it's all about. You know, they are, he, he represents sort of the new, the new big thing in our society. A no deal Brexit would be absolutely disastrous for our society. It would create the, the sort of a fertile breeding ground for the far right to, uh,
2: to, to sort of redirect people's anger and anything we can do to stop that is important. And you're, uh, you're here at Labour Party Conference. Listen, if you can hear a buzzing in the background, that is a ventilation system from the walkabout in Brighton <laughs> because me and Joe are actually here about to watch the rugby, but we'll get onto that in a bit. Yeah. Um, but what are you doing here at conference? What, what's, what's the setup? So we've got a stall um, where we're sort of set up so that we can chat to people. Um, which so this is, is coming out on Tuesday so you're, listen, you if you're at Party Conference you might still have time to catch Joe on the stall
1: yeah we're leaving Wednesday afternoon so you'll have a couple of hours left to come and get us we've got some leaflets we're selling some merchandise we've got some good t-shirts some those t-shirts and that look, sort look of so thing.
2: good yeah I've seen a couple he, of them around so, I mean this is off the podcast, but can you say one for Well, me? you know, we'll have to see, we'll have to see. Friends in high places. <laughs> Friends
1: in high places. Um, but we're also doing a couple of fringe events. Uh, we've got an event with you guys tonight where we're, we're doing a screening um, of a film that we produced recently about one of our operatives who went undercover in the
2: international alt-right movement. Yeah, and we're just sort of, you know, we're generally around having a good time chatting to people. And it seems like uh, Hope Not Hate exists in this kind of nice bubble away from Labour Party politics. But obviously Labour Conference has been, you know, going completely bonkers over the last few days. I mean, what have you picked up of it? What do you make of it? What's your feeling? Uh, well, you know, there's there's sort of a lot happening, but, um,
1: you know, it's kind of hard to take it all in really, isn't yeah. it? It's, it's a tough one. But look, it's, what, what one thing is clear is that, you know, Labour Party is committed to fighting the far right um, and that if there is going to be a Labour government um, and, you know, it's not it's not an organisational line. I, I don't speak on behalf yeah. of the organisation. That's been made very clear to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, you know, it's not an organisational line. But as myself, I've been a Labour Party member for nine years. And, you know, if, if Labour is going to is going to form a government, if it's if it's going to become the party of government, um, it's got to understand the threat that is the far right and you know, the, the Conservative Party is starting to become that now, in my opinion, they're, they're adopting the rhetoric of Donald Trump, There, there is uh, it's this sort of new populism um, that they're really, really embracing. Um, and it's so important for the Labour Party to not just replicate that on the left, but to actually stand up against it and be principled and say that, you know, you can't just tell people what they want to hear. And you can't just stoke up people's anger, but you've got to actually give them the real solutions.
2: Well, listen, I urge you to check out Hope Not Hates Work if you don't already know it, which I'm sure most of you do. And, you know, follow Joe on Twitter. Joe, what's your handle on Twitter? Uh, it's at Joseph L. Cox. So the rugby is about to start. Let's make some fools of ourselves right now. So Wales are about to play Georgia. First come, game. Come, 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 come to Ambith. Yes, come to Ambith. What's going to happen? Are we Are going
1: to win? Uh, yeah, I reckon so. We're going to win this one. We're going to win the next one and all the ones after that. And then we're going to have the World <laughs> Cup, I reckon. Right, should we duck in and get some breakfast? Yeah, let's do it. Cheers, all right,
3: you've been listening to the progressive Britain podcast the music was one in the west by blue dot sessions licensed under creative commons and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer caroline crampton